Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So that's where we are. Uh, so if you have a Bible, turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is the text that I just read to you. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat in front of you. If you don't know where Revelation is, start in the back of your Bible, work your way forward, and you will be there in no time. It's the final book uh, of the Bible. What we've been seeing throughout this series is getting us to ask the question, what does Jesus really think of these churches? What does Jesus really think of the church at Ephesus? What does he really think, as we saw last week at the, at the church of Smyrna, and now this week, what does Jesus really think of the church at Pergamum? And, and don't forget that we have to understand this. I've been saying this in the introduction throughout this series that notice at the end of all of these letters what the Lord Jesus Christ says, that these are the letters to the churches. Yes, these are written to individual churches, but these are letters to the churches. These are letters for even the church at Riverside this morning to take heed to and listen to and see what the Lord really thinks of, of Riverside in our own hearts. And so, so I just want you to understand this yet again, that this is not us in a nosy way saying, do you see that church in Ephesus and all the problems that they had? Did you see Ephesus? They fell away from their first love. They're, they're toiling, they're working, you remember, but they're not doing it out of the love of Christ, the love of neighbor, even for the love of each other. They're just going through the motions and their, their love has failed. And we saw the church at Smyrna. The Lord had nothing against them. They were faithful unto death. It's a, it's a faithful church. And so what we want to ask is, is, is what, does the Lord, what does the Lord think, Lord? And, and even ask the Lord. I mean, would we do that this morning that the Lord would, would expose us, would open us? And, and Because churches are, are, are really good at portraying something about themselves. Christians are really good at, in, in kind of curating this identity of what they want the world to perceive them as. But the real question is, is all of us will lay exposed before the Lord. And so, so how are we truly living before the Lord? Lord, Lord? Lord, know our hearts. And so the Lord is doing that for us in these letters to the seven churches, exposing the hearts of the church, uh, not so that we will say, aha, look at them, but Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any hidden ways in me so that I might repent and turn to you and be more than a conqueror through him who loved me and called me according to his purpose. This morning we look at the church of Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him with the sharp two-edged sword. So if you would, for a minute, let's get a picture of Pergamum. We talked about Ephesus and we talked about Smyrna. They're both prominent cities. And something you'll see really quick, that a lot of these cities are prominent cities in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey in that time. Smyrna and Ephesus were port cities. Um, Pergamum was not. If you're looking at a map, and these are why maps are put in the back of your Bible, Pergamum is north and a bit east of the previous cities that we've heard about. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Pergamum was not a port city. Rather, it lies about 15 miles or so inland, and it's not really on any major trade routes, yet it was still a very distinguished city. It was even the capital of Asia Minor. The city was a place of royalty and authority and also of great learning, second only to the great library in Alexandria, 
Pergamum's library boasted over 200,000 handwritten volumes. It is noted that the name Pergamum, if you look at it in the Latin, may be derived from the word parchment, being that this city made parchment a widely used medium for recording things like books, where people like Alexandria and Egypt were using papyrus, they were using parchment, so thus we get the word Pergamum, the city of Pergamum. It was a city of learning, a city of medicine, a city of worship. The god of healing in Pergamum was worshipped under the image of a certain, maybe, maybe serpents. Maybe the reason it was called the throne of Satan here, but there's probably other reasons as well. It was a cultural city dedicated to preserving Greco-Roman gods and culture, as well as the worship of the emperor. Notice something similar about all of these cities. If you wanted to be a prominent city, you better worship the emperor. You better bow down to the emperor. You better bow down to Caesar and be someone who he can trust, and then you will rise in prominence. There was even one, some people considered this one of the ancient uh, wonders of the world, was the altar at Pergamum, this pagan altar. So it was filled with emperor worship and pagan worship, worship. And so therefore, it's no wonder that this letter calls Pergamum the throne of Satan. Yes, maybe that image of the, of the god of medicine and, and the image of the serpent that he fell under, but more than likely, it was all of the pagan worship that was going on in the city of Pergamum. It was even described, you maybe heard it a second ago, that Pergamum was the place of where Satan dwells. In Pergamum, believers, here, here's why we need to understand what's going on in Pergamum. In Pergamum, believers were asked to compromise. That's a big word this morning, compromise. Go ahead and get that in your, in your minds, compromise. To offer incense to Caesar, declaring him to be Lord. And more craftily, they were tempted to participate in all of this cultural life that bled into pagan worship. That if you didn't bow down to the state, you risked it all. If you didn't proclaim Caesar as Lord, you were out. And so understanding Pergamum is getting us to understand what these believers in Pergamum were facing. And it was causing them to ask the question, as it's causing us to ask the question this morning, as we even talked about compromise, is who or what is, is enthroned in your life? What, what is priority in, in life? And let's be clear, it's not because culture and learning and medicine and government is all of the devil, but how we look at those things, how we trust those things. And we'll see in cities like Pergamum, the Christian is often tempted to compromise, to bow down to the culture, to, to bow down to what the world is worshiping at any given moment. If you are to be someone, you must compromise and bow down to these things. That's what the city of Pergamum was all about. So you can imagine the city of Pergamum like that. There was a church. But first things first. As in all of these letters, the first thing we need to do, yes, we understand Pergamum, but we need to get our eyes on Christ. We need to get our eyes on Christ. And as the other letters do here in the letter to Pergamum, John draws, or the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's revealing this to John, draws from Revelation chapter 1, this glorious picture that we give of the resurrected Christ, now, he, they, they point the city of Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, to a picture of Christ. Do you hear what it says? Let's look at it again. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, so we understand a little bit about the city of Pergamum, writes, let's get our eyes on Christ, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. So to this church in Pergamum, the Lord reminds him that he is the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. He's referring back to 
Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, where the Bible says that a sharp double-edged sword comes from his mouth. It's this image that we were seeing uh, through this, that the power is Christ. The authority is Christ. The battle is Christ. He is the one with power. He is the one with authority. So understand what he's getting their eyes on, church at Pergamum. You see the authority of Caesar. You see all of the authority of those around you. You see that and you're struggling. Do we bow down to that authority or do we trust a greater authority? He is saying, get your eyes on Christ. Get your eyes on me. I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I am the one who is the God of truth. This is the word of God as he's talking about here. You you heard this as we prayed this morning, Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. The word coming from his mouth, the the resurrected Christ's mouth, the sharp two-edged sword. What he's talking about is, is the word of God is true and trustworthy, inerrant and infallible. The word of God, the sharp two-edged sword of God, it's authoritative and it's sure. It's judging and disciplining. So understand what he's getting before him. I will judge the nations by my word. And even for the people of God, we'll see this morning, it cuts both ways. That it will also discipline us and re- refine us as we hold ourselves before the word of God. It hurts, it heals, it cuts, it, he- it, it shores us up. Judging the thoughts of the heart, Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. So he wants them to understand the powers that be may wield a powerful sword on earth, but a mightier sword, a more trustworthy sword, comes from above the earth with ultimate authority. Believers in Pergamum, fear not the power of the state. Fear not because we are members of God's kingdom. He is the one with ultimate authority. He is the one with ultimate truth. Don't compromise your truth to go along with the word because his truth alone is trustworthy. And all truth is God's truth coming from his mouth. The imagery is important for the church because of what they are facing. In a world full of, of myths, we need to understand the authority of the Lord of truth. So to the church in Pergamum, struggling with all of these things faced with all of this temptation to compromise, there's your picture of Christ with a sharp two-edged sword. The word of God is trustworthy. So have that picture before you. Let's keep going. Verse 13. So to the church in Pergamum. So we understand the city of Pergamum. They get the picture of Christ. Now let's get a picture of what's going on in the church in Pergamum. Verse 13. So the first thing we want to see about the church in Pergamum is that the Lord knows where they dwell. Let's take a look. Verse 13, Revelation chapter 2. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So you probably have an idea of why it's called Satan's throne at this point, right? All the things that we see going on in Pergamum. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Notice a few things about the church at Pergamum. The first thing I want you to notice here in verse 13 is that the Lord knows where they dwell. He knows where they dwell. Do you see what else it says? That this is the place where where Satan dwells. Once again, we have to get through our minds and we have to get into our understanding that we do not need to forget that our battle is not against just flesh and blood, but it's through rulers and principalities. Spiritual warfare is real. 
This is the place where Satan dwells. Satan has a foothold, if you will, in this city. And, and church, you're dwelling in that place. You're living in that place. You're, you're, you're living life in that place. You're putting roots down in the, that place. You're like You're not going anywhere. You're dwelling there. You're abiding there. This is a place of intense spiritual battles, even so much so that it's called the throne of Satan. This is a task that's too great for you to handle. This is the place of Satan, and you are dwelling there. How will this church survive, much less thrive in a place like this? They will do so through prayer, through proclaiming the word of God, through serving, through laying down their lives, not taking up arms, but laying down their lives, because this is a spiritual battle they're going through, and they'll do this knowing that the Lord has them there. The Lord has them. I, I know where you dwell. I know exactly where I've placed you. It's a hard place, I know. It's an evil place, I know. But I have you there. You might lose your life from being there, but I know where you dwell. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows exactly where he placed you. It's not happenstance that you are in the place you are in, the city you are in, the family you're in. It's not happenstance that you're sitting in this church this morning. It's not happenstance that you're part of this church or the country that you are in. He knows exactly where you are, the school you're in, the job you're in, the workplace you're in, the the difficult things that you face in you, the struggles that you have. He knows exactly where you are. And he's your great high priest who's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. You have an advocate's No matter what trials encompass you, he knows it all. And behold, the Christ with the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth, he's the one that knows where you are. What is your hope is that that Christ holds you and has you. So brothers and sisters in church in Pergamum, to the churches, right? To the church at Riverside, right? Know this, the Lord knows exactly where you have. It could be the foothold of Satan, but he has you there for a reason and for a purpose. Don't forget that. He knows where you dwell. It's the place that Satan dwells. And then not only does he know where you dwell, notice what he says next is that in this church of Pergamum, I know where you dwell. And, and now he says the faithful are, are commended. Listen to what he says. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so in this difficult city, in this difficult time, in this difficult region, many in the church were faithful and had been faithful. The Lord knows where we live, and we are called to be faithful where we live. In fact, there's even one who's named Antipas, and then during your time, some of you even gave your life, and he himself gave his life, and we don't know a lot about this guy Antipas. Some, some say that he was um, burned to death in a bronze bowl, but a, a lot of that is just tradition. We don't know historically exactly who this guy was, and that's okay. You, there, there's not a whole lot that has to be known about you for your life to count. You understand that, right? God hasn't called you to be famous. God hasn't called you for books to be written about you. He's called you to a particular place, and he's called you to be faithful there even to the point of death. There's not a whole lot that needs to be known about you. This is all we hear of Antipas, and he's not chronicled in in history, but he's chronicled in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what matters. 
And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that. The Lord knows where you are. He calls you to be faithful, faithful there no matter what it might look like for you. You might fly under the radar a little bit. Not a whole lot's being said about you. Church at Pergamon, there might be not a whole lot to said about you, but, but you're being faithful where the Lord has you. And look at what it says. It says, hold fast my name. How, how are we faithful? We cling to the Lord's name for strength. That's our identity. That's our security. You see what it says here? Not only does he hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith or your faith or trust in me, there was, there was no compromise in you. That you hold fast to my name, that my name was exalted so much so that that was your peace and security. That at all costs there was no compromise. I'm not denying the name of my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not bowing to Caesar. I'm not bowing and putting incense before that altar. No matter what it costs me, I will not cling to any other name but the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what happens. I will not deny my faith in my Lord Jesus Christ. He's been faithful to me so far. I will not deny him even unto death, it says. We witnessed all of this in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you even unto death. You see, Antipas, the faithful, was commended. He was a citizen of the true king, not the one enthroned in Pergamum, but the one enthroned in heaven, wielding the sword from heaven, the one who is above it all. For Antipas, there was no compromise, and there are others like him. Be an Antipas. Be worth imitating in that way, and your life will count. So we see the church of Pergamum. The Lord knows where they dwell. The Lord calls them to be faithful where they are, and we have some examples of faithfulness. So there's a lot of good things that are going on in that church. But now we get to the compromised being called out. This is probably the part of the passage that you're like, what in the world was he talking about there? Let's take a look and read it again. Verse 14. The compromised are about to be called out. But I have a few things against you. So he's exposing their heart at this point. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now what could be more clear? That we know what the Lord has against them. They're trusting the teaching of Balaam. They're trusting what Balaam told to Balak and they're doing the things of the Nicolaitans. We can just move on from there, right? No, <laughs> no, this probably takes some time to understand what's going on here, right? So let's take, we need to spend some time here talking about Balaam and Balak and what's going on. We know a little bit about the Nicolaitans. We, we saw them with the church of Ephesus. They rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans because it was poor theology that led to poor practice. But now this church in Pergamum is receiving those folks, these false teachers, And so they were compromised. And there's something about Balaam and Balak that we need to know. Now understand this. This was shocking. I I didn't realize this until this week. That Balaam and Balak are some people that we need to be aware of. Did you know that Balaam is mentioned in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Micah, Jude, 2 Peter, and Revelation? And primarily in Numbers. Seven spots in the scripture, the Lord found it appropriate to tell us something about avoiding the teaching of Balaam. 
Maybe you remember this about Balaam if it's not ringing any bells so far. Do you remember the talking donkey? Do you remember this story in the Old Testament? That's the the story of Balaam. Let me tell you a little bit about Balaam because this will get us to understand what's, what's going on here. Balaam was not part of Israel. He was a prophet, but the Bible describes him as a diviner. Right? So, so he was not part of Israel, but he was a prophet of the day. He, he was kind of like a, a pay for prophecy kind of guy. You could pay Balaam off and he would speak blessings or curses uh, over the people that you told them to speak blessing and curses over. So there's Balaam in Numbers chapter 21, verse in 22 and 23 is where you can start to hear about the story of Balaam. The people of God, Israel, were on the plains of Moab. Remember, they've been wandering the desert for 40 years, and they are on the brink of entering the promised land, and they're dwelling on the plains of Moab, and the king of Moab at the time was named Balak. Balak sees that the people of God are advancing, and he realizes that he stands between him and Moab, between the people of God and the promised land, and he sees the mighty hand of God that's leading them to the promised land, so he starts shaking his boots a little bit. So Balak, the king of Moab, seeks to hire Balaam to speak curses upon God's people. Are you with me so far? And so he's supposed to come and speak curses. So Balaam, I mean, Balak sends his best down to Balaam to try to buy him off. He can't buy him off. And so he finally says, hey, look, Balaam, come, come to me. Come to me and we can work this out. And the Lord met Balaam in the dream and said, don't say anything other than what I tell you to speak. And Balaam had a little bit of fear of the Lord, even though he wasn't part of Israel. God can still use pagans in ways that they don't even understand. And so the Lord meets Balaam and says, don't say anything other than what I tell you, but you can go down to Balak. The very next day, Balaam wakes up, mind you, and goes down to see Balak in Moab. God is not happy. You say, wait, wait, God said you can go, but now he's not happy because the Lord knew his heart. He knew that Balaam was up to something going down to Moab. So Balaam gets on his donkey, and this is where the donkey speaks to him. It's a wonderful scene in Numbers where he goes, this donkey's going all over the place. It goes into a field, and it traps him between two walls. Balaam gets off his donkey. He's ready to kill this thing, and the donkey says, Dude, what are you doing? Don't you see the angel of the Lord that's before me? And without missing a beat, Balaam starts talking to his donkey, and they just go on with the conversation. Turns out he sees the angel of the Lord. He doesn't kill his donkey. He sees the angel of the Lord and is warned again, only say what the Lord will have you to say. And so Balaam goes to Balak, and four times he gives him an opportunity to pronounce a curse for a large sum of money Balak does to Balaam over the people of Israel. But Balaam refuses to curse God's people, and this ticks Balak off. In Numbers chapter 25, when that scene ends... All it says is that they part ways. End of the story. Numbers chapter 26. Let me make sure I get this right for you. In Numbers chapter, and that's in verse 24. In verse 25, after this scene with Balaam and Balak, mind you, all of a sudden we see that something terrible is happening among God's people. So much so that the Bible says that they have yoked themselves to Baal, a false pagan god. So much so that the Bible says, PG-13, they're whoring themselves to the Moabite women, and they start to worship the Moabite gods. They're compromised. They have done something ethically 
and now they are forming their theology around an ethical failing, and now their theology is bad, so their practice is bad, their worship is bad, they're all over the place. The Lord, this is, gonna, this, this is important, sends a curse upon God's people. 24,000 of them die. In the middle of them repenting of their sin, weeping before the tent, confessing to the Lord that we have done wrong, we have worshipped wrong, this curse is deserved by us, 24,000 people die, one man brazenly continues in sin, Phineas, Aaron's son, goes into the tent and stabs the couple right away, they're dead, the curse is over. Wonderful Old Testament story, right? Go back and read it, Numbers 21 and following, you can read that story. But here, here, here's the point. You say, well, what does Balaam have to do with that? Him and Balak had parted ways the chapter earlier, and now the people of God are in this predicament. The Bible helps us understand this. Numbers 31, verse 16. Remember, these people had yoked themselves to Baal. They tied themselves to Baal. They had compromised, and the curse of God was upon them. Balaam had said nothing, and so it appears. Numbers, verse 21, verse 31, excuse me, Numbers 31, 16 tells us that this came upon God's people, them yoking themselves to false gods, to pagans' gods, to pagan gods, all started with Balaam's advice. Balaam was culpable in this. So while he refused to disobey the Lord and bring curses upon God's people, he knew what would cause God's people to stumble. And so he told Balak, we don't have the dialogue here, but it probably went something like this. Balak, I'm not going to do this, but I know what will cause people to stumble. And in fact, when the Bible speaks about Balaam again, it says he compromised for money. He wanted gain. So perhaps Balak paid him off for doing this as well, giving him this advice. So he told Balak, I will know what, I, I know what will bring a curse upon God's people. God himself. I won't have to say anything. You bring some of your women down there, you get them to stumble ethically, and they will find themselves worshiping your gods. And then God will bring his curse upon them. And they will compromise. So Balaam knew what would cause God's people to stumble. And the Lord warns us about the teaching of Balaam here in Revelation and seven other times in the Bible. This is important for us to know. That's why we had to spend some time on that to understand. Because the same is true today. That we are tempted to compromise ethically, and when we compromise in that way, it will shortly come that we will compromise spiritually and begin worshiping other gods other than the one true God. The church of Pergamum is doing this. They're believing the teacher of Balaam. Oh, teaching of Balaam. Oh, that that doesn't matter. Just just go on living like the culture. It's not a big deal. That's just the way things are these days. That's just the way kids do it these days. That's just how it is. If the evil one in the throne of Satan, remember Satan is sneaky. He's crafty. Shoots fiery darts at us. If he can get us not to take sin seriously, Soon we won't take his word seriously, his sharp two-edged sword, by the way. And oh, how quickly we will compromise. And how easily and quickly compromise can sneak in. It was just at the advice of Balaam, just do this, Balak, send them down, and then it will happen. Remember, Satan is a slick deceiver. Young people, listen to this as well. He prowls like a lion. He's a slithering snake. 
He wants to destroy you. He wants to keep you from your good shepherd. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself and makes promises that he cannot keep and doesn't intend to keep. He makes promises that, oh, this will not be that big of a deal. All the while leading us not into green pastures beside still waters, but into the barren lands where you will be unquenched and famished. That to say, compromise can often begin as a seemingly insignificant moment with far-reaching and lasting implications. The church at Pergamum believed the teaching of Balaam. They compromised. They were compromising ethically. We're not sure how, but bowing down to the people that be, the powers that be at the time. And now they were compromising theologically. They were worshiping false gods, the gods of their age. And know this, that gods of our age don't have to be little idols that we set up. There, there are other idols of of money and sexuality and all of these things that we worship, idols of identity, all these idols that we will bow down to, oh, that's no big deal. Don't believe the teaching of Balaam. Bad behavior is often justified by bad theology. And bad theology, things like the teaching of the Nicolaitans, will often lead to immoral behavior. So he looks at the church of Pergamon, so the, the problem is within. And notice something else. So he calls out the compromised. He tells us about the faithful. I want to notice something here. That it was just some. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Brothers and sisters, we have to care about each other. We're not just individuals. We're part of a body. The Bible warns us about this time and time again. Galatians chapter 5, you were running so well, who hindered you? A little leaven levels the whole lump. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, a little leaven will impact the whole lump. The issue with this church is compromise, and even some affect the whole. Maybe it's starting to slip into you. I, I notice this in my own heart sometimes. Maybe it's starting to slip in that, that God opens a door for you to invite someone to church or to trust in Christ or to share the gospel, whatever else, but you don't want to lose that relationship, so you kind of hold back and you start to compromise in, in little ways, and all of a sudden, you're compromised in big ways. Just some affects the whole. Praise God. The letter doesn't end there right? What's the solution? We'll finish here. Therefore, oh, there's hope, you compromised folks. There's hope for my compromised heart. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and wage and, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And in other words, his sword is a sword for the nations, but, but it's also for the church to refine the church and and his word will come and his word will, will war with us and, and work on our hearts and expose us to, to bone and marrow, disciplining as well. Therefore, repent. Repent. That's the solution. You're going the way of compromise. Repent doesn't mean sit in a corner and mope about it. Repent means turn and walk the other way. Turn and see Christ and run to Christ. Repent, you compromised heart. Repent and turn, or the sword will fall upon you. Today, the Bible says, is the day of repentance. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But brothers and sisters, 
the sort of judgment for all of us who are in Christ Jesus no longer falls on us, but it's fallen upon Christ Himself. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's repent and let's turn to Christ. The Bible says, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Don't fall by the disobedience of Balaam. Don't fall to the compromise. Don't believe the compromise. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must get give an account. But we have a great high priest. This is the good news. Repent. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. The Bible says this. Jesus, the Son of God, so let us hold fast our confession, just like Antipas, who held fast to the name of God. Let's hold fast to the name of Christ. Let's hold fast our confession as our hope, our identity, our life, for we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews goes on to say, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Those who have compromised the uttermost draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And there's a promise that goes along with this to the one who conquers. Remember, how do we conquer? We're more than conquerors through him who loves us and calls us according to his purpose. It's by having faith in the Son of God. We conquer through faith, through trusting in him. So the one who trusts, the one who is more than a conqueror through Christ who loves us and who has called us, I will give some of the hidden manna. Here's the promise that he will feed us with the bread of heaven. To the one who conquers, we will have the true food what the world cannot see. We will receive sustenance. What Satan promises but does not provide, God will provide to the uttermost the absolute bread for heaven. He will satisfy you. Just as he did through the wilderness, people of God, for 40 years, provided for you, he will provide for you and he will nourish you. You can thank that to the bank. He promised it for all who trust in him. The hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. There's, there's no, nobody is agreeing what this white stone necessarily means. Is it a, a stone from the priestly garment? Was it, what is a stone of the, that the victor of a, of a battle would be given as a signal of, of his victory? There's some debate of what image this stone is depicting, but it's clear that what this stone, no matter what imagery you take from the priest or the, or the victor of the, of the athletic game, whatever it might be, it's all over the place in commentaries. But what's What's certain about this, this stone is a sign that you are received, that you have access to him who loves you, that you're no longer an outsider, but that you know him and that you're intimate with him. I will give him a white stone with a new name. He will write his name upon you on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives you. He will feed you. He will welcome you in. He will name you. So lay down your arms. Lay down your posturing. Lay it before him. All your fronts, all your facades, all your compromise. For he is able to save 
to the uttermost. So what? What kingdom is your allegiance to? Who are you aligned with? Are you an Antipas? who has no compromise. God knows where he lives. He was faithful even to the point of death, and that's how his life counted. Where is compromise sneaking into your life, into your walk with the Lord? Know that you will miss sustenance. You will miss the intimacy that we have. You will miss those promises that the Lord has promised. May it be said of us today that there is no compromise. The Lord knows exactly where we are, and we'll trust him, and we'll be faithful and hold fast to his name, even to the point of death. Let's pray.